1: Hello, I'm Natasha Heller, one of the hosts for New Books in Buddhist Studies. I'm here today with Karen Darris, Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Redlands, where she holds the Virginia Hunzeker Chair in Distinguished Teaching. She is the author of Storied Companions, Cancer, Trauma, and Discovering Guides for Living in Buddhist Narratives. Welcome Karen. It's so good to have you here. Thank you, Natasha. So, there are two strands of your life and identity that intersect in this book that of a scholar of Buddhism and that of a cancer patient. I wanted to start with how you came to study Buddhism. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested uh, in Buddhist narratives? Sure. Um, well, academically, it started as an
0: undergraduate. Um, When I started my first professor of Buddhist studies, Harold Roth, um, his courses were mostly philosophical, um, but I did encounter some um, narratives in those um, in those courses. And then really in earnest, um, that began when I did a study abroad um, program with Hubert de Clare in India and Nepal. Um, and that's when narratives in Buddhist traditions really came alive. Um, my study of Buddhist uh, narratives there was with uh, my host family, um, the mother of the Tibetan family that I was staying with in Kathmandu, um, really wanted to teach me, uh, uh, share her tradition of Buddhism with me, I only had the smallest amount of market Tibetan. And of course, she didn't speak English. And so what she would do is sit on her couch with me and a graphic novel version of The Life of Milarepa. And she would slowly, slowly turn through the pages of The Life of Milarepa and pantomime out the story or point to certain pictures and with emphasis, and she would cry or laugh as we got to certain parts in the story. And it was such a, it was a gift of sharing um, that narratives were a way to connect with another um, reader or audience member, um, and that it was a very emotional, um, embodied experience and It was only years later when I read and reread The Life of Milarepa many times that I really realized how much she taught me about what it meant to be a reader, to read is best done in relationship with others, and that it's an embodied um, emotional experience.
1: That's a wonderful story. Um, that's It's a really vivid picture of how stories allow us to make connections across um, boundaries, you know, this language boundary that you encountered. Yes. Um, so then this other strand that's in the book is the cancer strand, right? So early in your career, you were diagnosed with a brain tumor. Could you say a bit about this experience? Yes,
0: it was... Um... Yeah. My life seemed like was just starting all of these ideas I had about who I was going to be and what I'd worked so hard for was just getting underway. I just finished my PhD at Harvard. I had my first child, um, and I had just started teaching and then I started feeling, um, this tingling in my limbs and went to have an MRI at my doctor's insistence and they found a tumor on those scans. Um, And so what I thought was supposed to be one thing, just the beginning of my life seemed like it might actually be the end um, as they were trying to figure out what this tumor meant.
1: And it, took a while to figure out what it meant, right? Um, That's right. So at first there was what they
0: ended up calling an accidental finding. Um, They saw this tumor on the scans. It was quite big, but they didn't know exactly what it was. And um, so let's see, initially... They, didn't, they did a, a biopsy, and they didn't find any cancerous cells in the biopsied material. And depending on who my husband and I asked, it meant different things. Um, the oncologists knew that it was cancer, even if they didn't have the biological evidence to break that, back that up. The neuro, um, um, excuse me, neurosurgeons knew 100% it was cancer. Um, and so we had these two different voices and we were living with that for 20 years almost until my third craniotomy, they had conclusive evidence that this tumor that had been living in my brain in a fairly lazy form, um, had taken off. And it was, um, the most dangerous form of brain cancer called the glioblastoma, So I had had all these years of living, knowing there was a tumor, but not really knowing what it was going to do. And then in 2017, I knew what it was going to do, and it was going to be the source of my death.
1: I just didn't know when. Right. I mean, that's a profound change. Yes. Um, And you, in the introduction to your book, I I don't know when you started reading cancer memoirs, but I'm I'm sure that it was at some point in this process and noticing and reading these memoirs of other people um, going through something similar that they'd brought their professions into their understanding. So, yes.
0: And I hadn't, I hadn't
1: really been reading about cancer
0: memoirs um, until after that diagnosis of grade floor cancer when I really had to face the reality that, yes, this is cancer, and it's a very dangerous form of cancer. And it was at that point that I started reading cancer memoirs, and almost every single author couldn't believe that they were writing a cancer memoir. And I still can't believe it. Um, it, it was never my intention to write a memoir. But now, of course, that is one part of what I did. Um, and a lot of these memoirs were gifts from other people, but I was really drawn to memoirs that were written by academics, as I am, and um, I think it's so hard for us when, especially for me and other brain cancer patients, spent my life training and cultivating my mind, and now my mind is... It's dying and it's like how can that be why can't i have finger cancer why does it have to be brain cancer well it is so that's all i can say about that i've had to come to accept that um yeah and so um philosophers that i read they brought in um their, philosoph- their philosophical um understandings those who were um naturalists Um, They brought in those, um, that content that was helping them process this new experience of living with cancer. And I realized that um, it really wasn't a choice. It just started happening that as I was having all these new experiences of being diagnosed and going through brain surgeries and then brain cancer treatment, that I was having these new experiences I didn't know what to make of. They were very scary. They were very physically intense and different stories that I had studied for so long, um, either as a student or writing about them in my dissertation and in articles, teaching as um, a professor of undergraduates. These stories would just start coming into my mind and it really wasn't a choice of um, sort of looking for a story. It was stories that would just come to me. So they made a lot of sense in those moments.
1: So it's like you had this um, background of, of narratives that came up for you as you were going through this.
0: Yes, I. Um, it was sort of like I had a, an encyclopedia of narratives. Some of them I had spent extensive amount of time with. Others um, I didn't know very well at all. Um, but I came to know more over time as I was. Um, I felt that I needed to do this work of bringing my new experiences of living into conversation with these Buddhist stories. That they were helping me. Um, know how to live in this new way, and sometimes I had to think about a particular story when I was feeling lost and confused and one of the emotions that has been most prevalent for me is um'm feeling alone or lonely, and I think that's where narratives are really such a productive source for me as narratives really bring you so close into um, proximity, um, into the care of these other of characters in different settings in different times. And, um, and then it's only, and so those, that kind of cache of stories continues to shift, um, and change over time. Even now that, um, it's been, it's been a couple of years now since I Sat down to begin writing the book, um, and different stories um, continue to come into um, my day to day life, and I'm like, living with them. And in these moments now, as I as I'm having to face new experiences,
1: right? So I'm wondering if you can maybe talk about one of the 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 specific stories and a story that is, you know, known to anyone probably who's taken even an intro to Buddhism class. And it's a story that you talk about, um, in the first chapter. And it's the story of the Buddha before he becomes the Buddha, um, going out to see the four sites. And when you talk about this story, you shift the perspective or you ask us as readers to shift our perspective. Um, can you talk a little bit about this story? Yeah, absolutely. So this
0: is the story of the four omens. And when Prince Siddhartha um, leaves the palace for the first time, amazingly, um, and goes out into his father's city um, to see um, reality outside of the curated experiences of pleasure that he had grown up with inside the palace walls. And over a series of visits, he sees a sick person, an elderly person, a dead body, and then on the fourth visit, he sees a renunciant. But those first three um, omens, omens of impermanence, of decline and death, um, really shake him very deeply. I call it in the book an existential crisis, where for the first time he sees suffering and he sees the way that suffering or decomposes who we are um, as we live, and he he says to his his friend who's in the chariot with him each time like what is this like he actually doesn't know what sickness is. And, um, and his friend explains what it is. And, and then his follow up question is, will this happen to me? And the response is, yes, this happens to all living things. So yes, this will happen to you. And so for me, when I was, I was thinking about what it meant to be this ill, right? And that this illness that I have is, it's an incurable disease. And so while I'm not, I haven't faced the final moments of what this disease will do will do to me, I know that this is going to be the source of my death. Maybe something else will happen that will kill me first, but um, most likely it will be this cancer. I actually told um, my husband that if I died of COVID, he better um, put in my obituary that I was really angry that I didn't die from my um, brain cancer. So, um, so instead of the way I'd always thought about this story was from a fairly detached analytical reader. And I for me now, when I think about that position of the reader, the interpreter, it's always from a kind of removed position floating up in the sky, maybe like a drone over this scene. Um, And it had always been from that remove um, position of not taking anybody's position in the story, just being outside of the narrative frame altogether. Then um, after my diagnosis and really like the effects of the treatment, I started thinking of this story and I realized I wasn't outside of the story. I wasn't in the chariot with Siddhartha. I was, I was next to this sick, um, elderly, dead body. Like these, the three omens. That was where I belonged, um, and I think um, what's valuable about that for me is that if people. If other readers can join me in those kinds of spaces, like down in the the streets of Sudodana's capital, um, they move from this question of "what is this" to this question of "this is happening to me." This is what um, will happen to me, right? So we have this kind of existential crisis as a reader that Siddhartha had in the story. And so as a reader, we have that same kind of like, I can't put this off. This isn't happening only to other people. If you put yourself in the street as that dead body, this is is going to be me. And so I think we get a closer sense of what it must have felt like for Siddhartha to be experiencing suffering for the first time.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, a really valuable, you know, the way you've put this to you, that we are down in the streets, to a really good change in the perspective that we might take on this story. And you do a, a lot of this kind of perspective shifting in this book. Um, and so one of the other um strategies I think you use in thinking about Buddhist stories is, uh, in chapter two and elsewhere, you talk about imagining characters from Buddhist stories in modern settings. Can you tell us one about one of those thought experiments? Yes. I was just
0: thinking about this, um, with my students in a, um, a class that I'm teaching right now. And as we were looking at the life of the Buddha, um, and they had read about the prophecy at Siddhartha's birth, birth that he could become the greatest emperors of the world. Her, he could become a greatest spiritual teacher. And they don't understand why the king um, tries to shape his son's life so he'll stay inside of the worldly life and what a life of suffering instead of a spiritual life. And so we start exploring that question. Their their question is why, why would, why would his father do that to him? And so then I'll start asking them questions like, um, do any of you come from families that own like a family owned business? And so some of them will probably there'll be one or two who say yes. And, do you have any pressure from your parents to go into that family business after you graduate? Maybe one or two will like kind of nod, and so we'll say, "Well, why do your you know why does your family want you to do this?" And so they'll they'll keep thinking we keep unwinding it, and then they start to understand the king's perspective, and it stops. You know, now they're seeing their experiences, and why their parents seem to be, in a sense, limiting their choices in what seems like a selfish reason, and they can see it from another perspective. And just like Siddhartha went on to follow the path that he felt he must do, they see that, well, you know, their choices aren't actually completely cut off to them, but how might they negotiate that with their family? And how could they see
1: something good in, um, from both perspectives? So that really brings it into the students' lives. Uh, right. Right. So turning to chapter three in your book, um, you intertwine the discovery of the brain tumor, your brain tumor and what it means um, with raising a young family. Um, and also with your growing relationship with the Karmapa, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about these three strands, and especially how the um, the latter, how the, your relationship with the Karmapa influenced how you saw your health and family.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of stuff that gets
1: um, wrapped up
0: with each other, right? But this is, right. I think, as a you know, as um, as students of Buddhist narratives, I think we see. One of the, the main, um, a major part of the creation of narratives is how one story will become connected to other stories. And so um, one text will include sometimes very long quotations from other quotations, and so I see, I think I started seeing this without even really thinking about it as um, these different parts of my life were like intersections of different texts, like different narratives, how they quote other parts. And, and so I saw this too started happening with my life. So yes, I had, um, I was a new mother still. Um, my eldest child, my son, was just one when the tumor was found. And so my whole life as a parent um, has been with, um, with cancer. Um, and so as I was giving birth to children, as I was deciding if I was going to have another child, all of that was with the reality that I was dying. I just, the main question for me was when, when are you going to die? Um, um, but the choice was to live. And so the choice to have my second child, which um, my daughter, that um, choice was made after I knew that I had the brain tumor. Um, and that choice was then, well, oh, I have to live up until my death. And that was something that I learned from the Karmapa Absolutely. So I had, um, just to give a little bit of context for that, um, in 2011, um, through, um, the work of my friend who is a Tibetan Buddhist nun, um, Damsha Diana Finnegan, I was invited to bring a group of my, my college students to India to spend a month, in conversation, receiving teachings on um, contemporary issues with His Holiness, the 17th Karmapa. And that began um, my study of stories from from a spiritual master in the Tibetan tradition um, who is in the lineage of Milarepa. And um, and so when I first met him, I had already had a craniotomy. I was a parent. Um, and I had this anxiety, you know, my biggest anxiety, and it still is, is what does it mean to um, parent and care for my children in the ways that I want their whole life to be infused with the love of their mother and, um, how how am I going to build a foundation for that when I know that I will not be there for them as long as I want to be? And so um, there were a few occasions over the years when I was able to ask the Karmapa a personal question. and um, And I expressed to him that my biggest fear about having cancer was not um, was not for myself, really, but for my children and what it would do to shaping their lives. And um, it was in asking those questions that I found other ways of, of living, um, living with this um, terminal cancer. Um, it was in one of those discussions that... I asked him the orientation I should take going forward um, that became then the theme, I think, of this book, which was, um, I just said, I want to be oriented by love, not by fear. And I I don't have a relationship with him. I didn't have a relationship with him as a disciple, not relationship. And so he never um, corrected me. He would acknowledge what I said, um, usually just with an okay, um, but not correcting me either. And I felt like in those moments, he was assuring me that I was probably on the right course. And so then um, parenting with cancer, um, with the help of the Karmapa was to be oriented by love and not by fear. And so um, what I hoped to do for my children was just to make them feel surrounded by love. I didn't deny when, um, when directly asked um, what the impact this cancer was going to be, but we focused on the love rather than like, well, what will it be like when you're not here? Sometimes that happens. But moreover, we, we just try and feel the love um, that we have in our family. Um, another time, um, though he was, uh, my family was able to meet him, the day before I'd had another chance to ask him a question. It was more like reiterating that first one. And he looked at me and he said, they're gonna be okay, um, they're going to be okay. And, um, I just said like, oh, okay. I had no idea really like what that meant, but I was just like, okay. Um, and then the next day, um, my children got a chance to meet him and he held out his arms to them and put both of them, one on each side, sort of drawing them closer to him. And they were both a little, um, A little nervous and a little shy. And he said, No, 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 come on, come on. And he sort of hugged them closer to him. And then he looked at me in the eyes and he nodded his head and he said, Okay. And I realized this is what he had meant to me the day before like that my love was one condition for their well being. But there are so many other conditions that they were going to have present in their life over their course of their life. And I was one source of love, but not the only one, maybe not the most important one taken over a lifetime. And then I I started to understand that and it changed everything for me.
1: Yeah. The, the love in your family comes through just so clearly in this book. Um, and what I think you're talking about with your kids is also how time has shifted for you. Yes. Um, And, you know, chapter four, I think addresses that most completely that you, you think about time in different ways. Um, so I wonder if you can talk about your experiences of time. I think you've already suggested some of the ways you experience time differently, but maybe how Buddhism intersects with this.
0: Yes. Um, well one of one of the effects of my cancer it's really bizarre is that I had it's totally changed my relationship to time. I'm I am constantly lost in relationship to time. I I can't remember what day of the week it is, what time it is. I'm late for everything. I am I have a hard time remembering what year it is. Um, and so there's just this confusion of time of not being able to grasp it. And part of um, the medieval Buddha biographies that I studied um, for my PhD was um, these um, expansive versions of the Buddha Vamsa tradition, um, medieval biographies of the Buddha and Theravada traditions, in Pali traditions, and those start with um, saying, you know like um, a long could put it in terms of like a long, long time ago, like a very long time ago, like so long ago that it can't be counted, like that it's a bazillion gazillion years ago. you can't count it, but then of course, they start to count it. and so there is this tension, I think, in Buddhist. Um, texts, especially narrative texts of like, what is time? Can we, can we, can we, can we conceptually hold it? Or is it always spilling over that? Is it always something outside of our grasp? And yet we have this tendency to want to be able to grasp it. And um, I was fascinated and I am fascinated by prediction narratives. And these are the narratives when, once a Bodhisatta has um, fulfilled all of the necessary requirements, a Buddha will make a prediction of exactly when that Bodhisatta's last lifetime will be, when they will attain awakening. And so there's a, a full blueprint of the future, of what's going to happen, and will be present there, and what it will look like, where it will be. And I've always been fascinated by those prediction narratives. And I think I've already said that for, I think for people who are living with uh, terminal illnesses, they want to know when will my death be? Because you already know what's likely to be the source of your death, but you don't know when that will be. I mean, there's all of these um, prognosis charts. I should already be dead according to the statistics of my uh, disease, but thank goodness I'm not. And um, um, so those sort of statistical tables um, don't have the kind of certainty that a Buddha's prediction of a future be. Buddha, um, has those prophecies about the future of time are absolutely certain. And that's what I wanted. I wanted sort of like an absolutely certain view into my future and how long would it be so that I could prepare all the things I felt like I needed to prepare. Um, but I finally started to realize that, you know, that wasn't for me. Um, and it wasn't, um, that it was another way into understanding impermanence, which is one way I would say I've been living with my disease is that it has taken me so much deeper into my understanding of impermanence, but, uh, and also interdependence, um, but that by not knowing my when, I am really living with an understanding of the impermanence of time. And there's so many different dimensions. It's not just, yeah, time is always changing. That's a, a very obvious way of looking at that question. Um, but the impermanence of time can also be that the past is always with us. And we're living in the future and the present moment. And these shifts between past, present, and future are happening um, sometimes at very rapid rates, sometimes very slowly. Um, so that is one way that these narratives have really um, helped me think about and reconsider um, the struggles that I'm having um,
1: as a seriously ill person. So you something else that shifts for you is the, how you think about receiving care um, which is uh, uh, the focus of chapter five. And, you know, there's care from expected sources like the nurses, your family, and so forth. But one of the things that fascinated me about this chapter was that you kind of bring up an unexpected source of care. And I, if I can just quote you, you write that being cared for beauty in its non sentient forms relies on cultivating my sense perception in new ways. And I thought that, I mean, that was really, really wonderful and very um, sort of changed the way I was thinking about things. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate a bit more on what it means to be cared for by non-sentient parts of the world. Yes,
0: thank you, Natasha. Um, This goes back to an earlier part of my life. Um, My mother died instantly in a car accident when I was 13 years old and um, I was with her in that accident. I was injured then. um, And so suffering came into my life um, then in um, a very um, acute, um, sharp way. And as I was growing up, and I grew up on the island of Maui, I felt so much suffering, uh, an absence of my mother, um, uh, loneliness, of a family that seemed to just dissolve um, with her death. Suffering became very, very real for me. And um, it was the beauty of the island that I lived on, that I've reflected back on it later, that it was that beauty that really helped me know um, what I've learned in Buddhism as, the third noble truth that there is more than just suffering in the world, that there will be a cessation to, um, to suffering. And the beauty of the Island that I lived on made me feel like if, if there's so much beauty in this world, there must be something other than suffering. And that there will come times in my life when I will feel the joy and the happiness, um, other than just suffering and that maybe they'll be woven together. Um, but, um, the care that the beauty on the Island gave to me, um, was very sensory. It was very embodied and, um, and I did feel cared for by the Island because I was, I was very isolated as a teenager. Um, I was often alone. And so, I needed to find sources of care. And part of it, I think, was um, searching And other parts. It was just what appeared in front of me. And had I cultivated um, the capacity to see that that was a source of care? Like, sure, it was a view of the mountains, um, and it was beautiful. But had I cultivated my senses and my mind in a way to be able to see. It's not just beauty, beauty is a source of care. It's a source of companionship. Um, and so that's what, that's what I meant by that. And I still feel that um, very, very strongly. Um, and again, it is this impermanence and the rapid rate of change in the beauty in places like that. Um, that is so powerful. I, I was thinking recently about uh, a hike that my family went on with um, childhood friends of mine. They took us up into pastures on the hillside of the volcano that we lived on. And there, we were just going for what, what's called in Hawaiian a, a hele hele, which is just a meandering And as we were meandering through these pastures on the side of the volcano, these green fields, the clouds would come in and out, in and out. We were walking in the sun, and then um, clouds would roll in, and we'd be covered um, by that clouds. We set out food for a picnic, and as soon as we started putting out the food, it would start to rain. And then by the time we sat down to eat, we were sort of, Um, we were all wet. Um, But then the clouds would drift away again and the sun would come out and then we'd be walking in the sun again. And the beauty is constantly changing that walking in the the rain is as beautiful as walking in the sun. And together, they make for the most caring of conditions.
1: So... One of the things that's really wonderful about that story is the way that it, not only are you experiencing the, you know, the impermanence of time and the beauty of nature, but you're doing it with companions. Um, And in chapter seven, um, you tell the story of five Pratyekha Buddhas. And so I want to kind of link, because that's what you, you talk about companionship in this chapter as well. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, give us this background to the five Pratyekha Buddhas. Um, and how they're connected, and what you take from their companionship.
0: Yes, these are, you know, I think, fairly unknown figures in Buddhist in Buddhism. Um, we read about them in Mahayana sutras, where they're spoken of polemically as the lesser and uh, lesser than and maybe. Um, like, we shouldn't spend our time worrying about these figures. Um, but Prachika Buddhas, I was really fascinated by them because unlike Sama Sambo, um, sorry, fully enlightened Buddhas in the Theravada tradition who can never exist in time together, and that's the Theravada tradition, Pracheka Buddhas in the Theravada tradition, they do exist in time together. And so they are... They're the only way that Buddhas in that tradition um, can be friends with one another. and I just thought that was such an incredible idea of Buddhas being friends with one another because we generally think about Buddhas as living in very distinct and distant periods of time from one another. Um, So the stories of the Pacheco Buddhas um, that I speak about in the book, I write about in the book, they've known each other across lifetimes and the sense of time in buddhism is that um it can be possible to have friendships and relationships that last um between births and deaths and um that's true for these Pacheka buddhas they make the aspiration together to become pacheca buddhas um and they live lifetime after lifetime perfecting um, the qualities that they need to have to become, to attain Pacheca Buddha, Bodhi, the wisdom of a Pacheka Buddha. Um, but in their final lifetime, when that's going to happen, there are these five of these um, Pacheka Buddhas, um, sorry, Pacheka Bodhisattvas, that is, before they become pacheka Buddhas. Um, and four of them find one another, but they realize their fifth companion isn't there with them, and they set out to go find him in the world. And when they do find him, um, I could go on and on about these stories because they're so wonderful, but basically um, the importance of the story is that they go into the world to search for their friend who they have lost at this really important time in their overall careers as Pacheka Bodhisattvas. And um, when they find him, he's about to create the conditions for very bad karma, which would set him back on his aspiration to um, become a Pacheka Buddha. And so they, they go to him and... He sees in them a different possibility of living with um, suffering and with creating conditions for um, joy and um, and so they um, because of them he shifts his perspective and his possibilities and he is able at that point to take off in flight like the other Pacheka Buddhas who have that capacity for flight um, because of their awakened state. And he flies off after them and there are these beautiful, beautiful murals in Thailand of these stories where the Pacheka Buddhas will look back over their shoulders and they'll be holding out their hands to this, um, to the one who's coming up the rear of fulfilling their aspirations together as a community of friends. And they fly back to their home, their communal home of Pacheka Buddhas on Mount Gandamandana.
1: This is what's on the cover of your book, right? <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the other sort of central themes, you know, naturally in your own story, in your the memoir part, and also in the story of Shakyamuni Buddha, is his mother, right? That of Maya. So circling back to um, chapter six, you know, m- what do you take from the story of Maya? I mean, because she dies shortly after she gives birth. Correct. Right. So, what
0: I take of it, there have been really wonderful um, ways, this this story of Maya's death, um, and then um, her sister, Gotami, Mahaprajapati, caring for Siddhartha, um, some from uh, Studying the music of these traditions in Cambodia, the wonderful work by um, Trent Smith and Anne Hansen has studied um, also in Khmer culture of um, from an ethnographic perspective of um, the role of Maya. For me, um, again, it just it spoke to my experience that, um, you know, my eldest child was one years old when I was diagnosed with a tumor. And there was this intense fear of who is going to care for this child who is, it's my obligation. He is, he is my, um, he is mine to care for um, and to love. and what will I do if I'm not present to, um, to care for him? And the stories of Maya and her sister are just incredibly tender and generous. Instead of being jealous or envious or furious that Maya's not going to be able to care for her own child but grateful to her sister, that her sister will take up the role of being the mothering mother of her child. Like she, Maya may have been um, the birthing mother of the one who would become the Buddha, but she knows that um, Gautami is going to be the woman who does all of the mothering acts. Um, And so, I think, better than calling her his stepmother or his aunt, which is how it's usually translated in texts. I think we should think of Gotomi as his mothering mother. And for me, it was really important because unlike Maya, who was so grateful to the woman who would mother his child, I I was... um, I don't have the certainty of who will care for my children when I'm not here. I have wonderful family and friends who I, I have confidence they will do that. Um, but um, that is one of those conversations that we need to have if we're going to take care, when you're dying, you want to take care of your living loved ones. And so one of the things that it's taught me is that there's a, a way in which um, dying, the those who are dying and those who will live beyond them can mourn together. And those um, different traditions that talk about the dynamic between Maya and her sister are ways in which the one who's dying, and that would be Maya. Um, They mourn together with the ones who are going to live beyond them, and that would be um, her son and her sister. And that by mourning together, we can live together in um, the act of mourning and the reality that all our lives, um, in whatever form, are impermanent. And even when we accept that without resistance, that it is going to bring emotions of mourning into life. Um, And that by accepting that and by being very transparent about it, we can live and die well.
1: Right. I see some of that. um, And I want people to read this for themselves, but some of that acceptance happening in chapter eight, um, where you're really summing up where you found yourself as you finished the book. Um, And I think that much of this book was finished before the pandemic. Um, So I'm wondering if there are new stories, and and of course the process of publication takes a while, um, if there are new stories that you found particularly meaningful in the last year or so.
0: Yes, it was... It was definitely done and uh, completed before the pandemic. Um, There's a couple of different stories that I've been thinking about um, lately. And well, I'll just take a a little um, move to the side here to say that when when the pandemic started and was underway and um, the reality of of sickness and the potential for death became really something that was being talked about, I had at first uh, a hope that um, maybe it would become more possible to speak about these issues because my experience has been is that people don't wanna talk about the fact that I'm sick. They don't wanna talk about the reality of death Um, and that our society as a whole um, can't do that. We don't do that well. And I thought maybe COVID was going to change that. Maybe we were going to, as a society, we were going to find ways to accept the reality of illness and death. But that hasn't been the case. Instead, um, I find that it's been more about focusing on statistics. How likely were you to get COVID um, about numbers? Were cases spiking? Were they leveling off? Um, and of course, I don't, I don't want people um, to become gravely ill or dying so that I can feel less alone. But um, I just thought on the scale of a pandemic, maybe we as a society would learn to live with these issues of terminal illness and death in different ways. But I'll take a step back now towards your question, um, Natasha. One question, I'm not exactly sure why, but one story I've been coming back to is um, when this, the monks of Kaushambi. And this is a story about um, the, the bhikkhus, the, the monks in the Buddha's um, Sangha, are fighting with one another. And the fighting keeps escalating. The Buddha keeps telling them to cut it out, but they keep fighting and they keep fighting. And they even deride the Buddha of like, who is he to get in the middle of this? Um, And he can't, um, at a certain point he says, all right, you all figure it out for yourself. So he leaves them there and he goes, um, he goes to a bamboo forest And in the Bamboo Forest, he meets an elephant, the Paralaika elephant, who cares for all of the Buddha's physical needs because he's alone for the first time. He doesn't have his usual attendant monks to care for him. The elephant cares for him. And finally, the monks, they kind of get their act together, especially because the lay people in the community are are quite angry with them because they've driven the Buddha away. And so not only has the Buddha left them, the lay people have also, um, are not very pleased with their, um, way they've behaved. And they, they go to find the Buddha in the bamboo forest and they see, um, that their fears of how had the Buddha managed without them were, um, had been for naught because, um, this elephant and other animals of the forest have cared for the Buddha beautifully. Um, So as I said, I'm not sure why I've been thinking about this story so much, but I think it's, um, I think I'm always looking for stories about companionship. And especially when there seems to be no hope of finding companions, if we don't have partners for care that we still find them. And I think in our time right now, when, as I said, I'm, I'm a professor of undergraduates, that my students are very, um, this has been a really hard time for them. It's been really hard for so many people. But, um, well, the piece of it that I see is my undergraduate students, it's been such a hard time for them um, and this issue of being isolated um, and the need and feeling lonely, um, that companionship is so important. Um, it helps us thrive. It helps us live well. And these stories, when I share them, these Buddhist stories, when I share them with my students, I think it gives them permission to say, yeah, I really, I really need others to live well. And, um, for me, this, this story, especially of the Paralaika elephant, um, aside from just being one of the most charming stories that I've read in Buddhist literature, um, is that if, if your if your mind and your heart is open, you'll find companions. There's this reassurance I have found in Buddhist narratives that you'll always be able to find sources of love.
1: I almost want to say that that would be like the perfect place to end. Um, But I wonder if I might ask one more question of you. Um, And, you know, we're doing this interview for New Books in Buddhist Studies. And so as a, a kind of final question, I wonder if you might talk a little bit about whether or how you think Storied Companions should be considered a book in Buddhist Studies uh, or, you know, kind of adjacent question would be, how would you want a Buddhist studies audience to understand or take up this book?
0: Yeah. So that's something that, um, is a question that's been on, on my mind. Um, and it's, it's a provocative question for me. It's a question that I, I try and think about without becoming defensive um, but I think it is a question because um, I did not write this book for scholars. I did not write this book for an academic audience. I wrote intentionally for a broad audience. I wanted, um, I wanted to share these resources that I've been developing um, basically my whole adult life um in an academic study of buddhism i wanted to write for a broad public audience and especially i wanted to write for people who like myself are living with um, terminal illness and are trying to find resources that can help them find different perspectives that enable them to live meaningfully um, up until their death. And so because I wasn't writing for academics, it meant a different style of writing, um, writing with vulnerability, um, writing in ways that I included my own um, life story. And there I get to how I ended up writing a memoir without intending to. Um, but reading with emotion um prioritizing a cl- closeness to the material rather than objectivity or analysis or analytics, I would say an analytical interpretation. I, I prioritized uh, interpretations that um, made ample room for imagination, for personal questions, And in all of those ways, um, they're different. They're not an academic book, but I would, um, hope to find conversation partners squarely in Buddhist studies who would say that, um, writing, um, or reading Buddhist narratives with all of those objectives does not mean that this is a book outside of Buddhist studies. Um, and that, um, Maybe um, we might think about the ways in which we should open up in Buddhist studies um, the ways in which that our goal should be to keep Buddhist materials alive for um, the context that we live in. Not only do we look at Buddhist resources for to understand historically how those texts, Um, those historical contexts or their didactic um, purposes, of course, all of that is essential. And I think that I do that as well, but that um, our scholarship should be relevant um, to the world that we live in, the time that we live in, and that it should be responsive. And that responsible scholarship Buddhist studies can leave room for asking the questions of how is this relevant? How
1: are these texts from another time and place responsive
0: to our world
1: now? Thank you so much, Karen. Um, I'm really grateful for the time you spent with us today and uh, I really encourage listeners to pick up a copy of Storied uh, Companions. Um, And again, um, thank you for sharing your life and your work with us. Thank you so much, Natasha.